So we're moving to our, our, I guess, our first official lesson in, in our moral theology class. And this is the most important point, probably the most important point all year, because it's all going to come back to this. Christian morality is not primarily about following rules, but about following a person. Christian morality is not primarily about following rules, but about following a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. It's the Latin phrase, the sequela Christi, the following of Christ. And this lesson today is derived a lot from that first section of Veritatis Splendor of Jesus' encounter with the rich young man, which John Paul II uses to establish his paradigm for explaining moral theology. And so in chapter 19, or in paragraph 19, he says, following Christ is thus the essential and primordial foundation of Christian morality. Just as the people of Israel followed God, who led them through the desert towards the promised land, so every disciple must follow Jesus, towards whom he is drawn by the Father himself. So you look at the catechism, the section on morality, what is it called? Life in Christ. Life in Christ. So this is all, of course, assuming that we acknowledge Jesus as an historical figure, which hopefully you all do. If you don't, you are in the wrong classroom. Jesus is not a myth. There's not a single thing in the gospel written like a myth. It's very well situated in a very particular place and circumstance. Christ might be the fulfillment of the myths of the ancient cultures, as C.S. Lewis will talk about, but he's a real historical person. But what makes him unique as a prophet, as a messianic figure? Of course, we believe he's the Son of God, but in just his simple presentation, the way if you would compare him, let's say you compare Jesus to Moses and to Muhammad and to the Buddha and to the guy, Confucius, Zoroaster, whatever it is, other sort of great moral teachers, what's the difference between Jesus and them besides the fact Jesus is God? Okay, we, we know that. What's the difference, particularly in the way they presented morality? He did. Be more specific. Uh, most of them gave moral theories. At least, like they were, they're like, "Hey, here's a thing I need you to do, or here's a thing I want you to do." Or it was more like, "I found this thing, and I and I want you to follow it as well." Correct. You're getting warmer. So I was going to say, like Moses said, God said this. Jesus said, I say. Correct. Let me sum it up. All right, John Paul's gonna. Correct, yes, and I'm going to, y'all are correct. Yes. He's not just a way, a truth, he is, he is the way. Correct, y'all all got it correctly, I'm going to put it more succinctly. Others came to teach a way. They said, this is the way, if you want to be good or holy or follow God, this is the way to do it. Here are the Ten Commandments, here's the, the Eightfold Rule, here are all my wise saying, here's the Tao, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the, the succinct way of putting it. 
Follow me, yes, because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Unlike every other moral teacher or prophetic figure, it's what Hans Urs von Balthasar calls Jesus is the concrete norm of morality. You might want to remember that phrase. Jesus is the concrete norm of morality. All of these moral rules, whatever, are concretized in him as a person. It doesn't mean that he didn't have a moral teaching. It doesn't mean that he didn't come and, and give us a way to behave and flesh out specifics, but he is. So he's more than just a moral teacher. Following him has to mean more than just following what he told us to do. Veritatis Plindor number 15, John Paul II. Jesus himself is the living fulfillment of the law, and as much as he fulfills its authentic meaning by the total gift of himself, he himself becomes a living and personal law who invites people to follow him. Through the Spirit, he gives the grace to share his own life and love and provides the strength to bear witness to that love and personal choices and actions. And so we know Jesus. We love Jesus. We are in a relationship with Jesus. Therefore, we follow him because we believe he is the Son of God and he is the fulfillment of human existence. And so, Veritatis Splendor number two, This he's drawing from the Vatican Council, but he says, the light of God's face shines in all its beauty on the countenance of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the reflection of God's glory, full of grace and truth. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Consequently, the decisive answer to every one of man's questions, his religious and moral questions in particular, is given by Jesus, or rather, is Jesus himself, as the Second Basical Council recalls. In fact, it is only in the mystery of the word incarnate that light is shed on the mystery of man. For Adam, the first man, which is a figure of the future man, namely of Christ the Lord. It is Christ, the last Adam, who fully discloses man to himself, and unfolds his noble calling by revealing the mystery of the Father and the Father's love. All right? So, we're following Jesus because Jesus reveals who we are as the perfect man, and he reveals how we ought to act and how we ought to behave. That's God, he was best 22, I think. 22 or 24, I forget. So, in knowing Christ and following Christ, we come to find out who we are and who we're called to be. And the fact is that Jesus is still alive today. He's still alive today. You know, if you ask most people, why are you Christian? Well, I'm a Christian because I was raised that way. Okay, wonderful answer. But you haven't taken ownership of your faith. Why is anyone Christian? Why, why are we Christian? Why were the first Christians Christian? Why did the apostles die? What, what, what was the purpose of all this? What are we doing here? You might want to guess, okay, like, really, this is going to be embarrassing if you get it wrong. Yes, you? Because they encountered a person that changed their life? Yes, sort of, because we've all encountered people who changed our lives. You know, uh, it's, we, I don't worship. Joseph's changed my life. I don't worship him. You know, whatever. <laughs> you haven't changed my life yet, Joseph. One day, one day, maybe. Why? Why? Why are we Christian? 
water to wine, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you weren't there. You don't know that. That's not the reason Christians followed Jesus in the first place. They didn't even know he did it. Because Jesus rose from the dead. All right, that's the reason. We are Christian because of the resurrection. Without the, res- without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. Jesus said all these things, worked all these miracles, but then he died and he came back and he's still alive. And he's given us the power and the ability to share in his resurrection. That's the reason we're Christians. The early the apostles didn't die for the miracles. They died and said, hey, I saw this dude die and he came back to life and he's still alive today. You're crazy. Deny that. I, I'm not, no, I can't deny it. I saw him. He's alive. Oh, head cut off or skinned alive, preferably head cut off. Skin alive would be much worse, but regardless, it's the resurrection. This is why we are here. We've got to be able to defend our belief. And so if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he's still alive today, and we can encounter him and follow him. But why do we follow him? That's a very important question. Why do we follow him? Is it because Jesus says, all right, you're going to follow me, or you're going to go to hell? No. There's, there's always freedom. He didn't force the rich young man to follow him. He draws us to himself. There was something about Jesus that made those apostles drop what they were doing to follow him, and we'll talk about that. But ultimately, we follow him because he loves us and we love him. And again, we could talk about all different types of love, the love of friendship, the love of agape, whatever. But we follow him because we know the Lord has first loved us. We've experienced that. His willingness to die for us and give himself. And we respond to that gift of self by following him. As imperfectly as we may do it. We'll talk about that more later. But love is going to be the motive that you have. So the point is, without a personal relationship with Jesus, without knowing his love for us, without encountering him today, because you can encounter him today because he is risen from the dead. It's not like some figure who died 2,000 years ago and we really are inspired by his life, so we want to be like him. We can be inspired by his life when we read in scripture, but we can encounter him today. But in a world that, that his, his denied transcendence, objective truth, spirituality, the metaphysical, the power of reason... You know, without Jesus, our appeals to these different things, as important as they're going to be, not going to be as convincing. I've become more and more convinced that outside of a relationship with Jesus and a spiritual life and a prayer life, Christian life will make no sense to people outside of the church. Why are you doing these things? Because we're going to see there's this whole worldview that we live in that denies the power of reason denies spirituality that sees science and technology as determining the truth. And it just doesn't make sense to a lot of people. But if you know Jesus and your moral life flows from that, oh, it's going to make sense. Particularly when it comes to areas of sexuality and when it comes to areas of bioethics. Well, why can't I love this person? I love this person. Why are you denying me the rights? Why are you saying that I can't have IVF? You're saying that we would cure cancer, but we can't cure infertility? What's the problem? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Unless you understand the world from that deeper Christian perspective. But I don't want to get ahead of myself.
And even more, without this relationship with Jesus, the moral life tends to become burdensome, as I said. If you're just being moral because, well, there's the Ten Commandments and we're supposed to follow them and this is what Jesus wants, it's not a bad thing, but eventually these rules and laws will become burdensome and you will reject it, becoming resentful of the laws and the lawgiver, Christ and the church. Or as I said, we'll say, all right, well, these are all the rules and laws. Let me do as little as I can in order to avoid grave sin and to still squeak into heaven somehow. This is the moral life for many Catholics today, particularly cultural Catholics, raised Catholic, grew up in a home where 20% of the people actually went to Sunday Mass, went to Catholic schools, but were never evangelized. They were catechized, but never evangelized. And now are adults, and, and their faith is, is sort of just, here are a bunch of rules. We don't know what it makes sense. I've never really encountered Jesus. He's this historical figure, but they're immersed in this sort of nihilistic worldview, and they're practical atheists. And so you could teach them stuff, you could teach them the moral life, but unless they have a conversion of heart, then it doesn't matter. We believe in the same things they believe in. We believe these moral truths. We act because of a different purpose. Not because we have to, but because I know and love Jesus. That's the reason. This is why we act this way. And this is why we don't act in certain ways. Because Christ has revealed who we are and what leads to happiness and acting in these certain ways that we would consider unethical are not going to lead to happiness. It's not what Christians do. As we're going to say there are certain ways Christians simply don't behave. People will, didn't understand it in the early days of the church, and they may not understand it now. But we're still going to act this way because this logically flows from our encounter with the person of Jesus. And so that's why, from a pastoral dimension, y'all, evangelization has to come either along with or before catechesis. we got a bunch of people out there catechized, but they're not evangelized. They, they know all the exteriors. They don't know the core. They don't know the central key. It's like, as we're going to use this analogy later, they know all the rules of football, but they don't know that playing football is fun. I'm just playing it to follow the rules. Well, no one does that. You follow the rules because it helps you to play the game. It's your love for the sport that makes you want to follow the rules. And so what happens is, is we often assume people believe and, 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 and have this deep faith in Jesus. And so we teach the moral life, but we're ultimately putting the cart before the horse. I'm not saying we don't teach on moral issues. We need to. But unless there's evangelizing, the chance that that falls into moral, moralizing without evangelization, is a very high risk. People don't know the ultimate reason. We've got to teach morality in relation to teaching spirituality. Hey, this is who Jesus is. This is why he died for you. This is how you encounter him in the sacraments. And therefore, your moral life is going to flow from that. Rarely in my experience, hey, start living a moral life, and then you'll believe in Jesus. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Indeed, sometimes, hey, try to live a moral life, and then it'll draw you to Christ. But more often than not, a person who commits to prayer, who commits to getting to know Jesus, and they encounter him in a deeper way, the moral life flows naturally. They don't need to think about these things. Why? 
do I, do I need to think, should I murder the person I love? No, you don't think about that because you love the person. And so when we love the Lord and love God and love others as ourselves, we don't really need to think, should I kill this person? Should I punch them in the face? No. Should I lie and cheat? No. It flows naturally because of your love. But we're going to get back to that. But to follow Jesus begins or has to begin with an encounter with Christ. And this is one of my favorite phrases from the encyclicals of Pope Benedict. It's from Deus Caritas Est. Many of you may know this. Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. It's not, oh, I think I like this ethical system of Christianity. No one would like the ethical system of Christianity because it means you're going to die to yourself and pick up your cross. Christ's moral preaching is not super attractive. It's just not. At least in my opinion, it's not. But something made the apostles follow. They encountered Christ, his goodness, his holiness that sort of radiated from him. And so all he did is come and see. Follow me. All right, we'll go check it out. It's the goodness in Christ that drew them to him. As I said, love motivates it. We have to know the Lord, love him. I'm going to tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of I'm in love with Jesus. Uh, Maybe, but I don't say that about my friends. I'm in love with my friends. I love my friends. I would give myself for my friends. Um, And I think that's kind of that, that language maybe freaks people out a little bit. Oh, I'm in love with Jesus. Again, I'm not trying to say that we can't say that, but we do love the Lord, and we know that he loves us because he reveals the Father's love to us. He's willing to die for us. That's that agape love. It's not the love between man and woman, and I think when we use the phrase in love today, it, it harkens back to that romantic love, even though it's not what we're talking about, and it might sort of freak some people out. I don't know. Maybe you all think I'm crazy, but we love the Lord, and we know he loves us, and that, that deep sense of love, which we're going to talk about the different forms and the different uh, expressions of what love is. But because we love him and he loves us, and we know that he wants what's good for us, and he died for us, and we've encountered him, we're free to follow. He's never going to force. For the rich young man. But there are demands. It's not like, hey, we're going to follow Jesus. Everything's going to be great. We don't know where he's leading us. We know we're going to have to carry the cross to follow him. And chances are there's going to be some suffering that comes from the exterior, but also the self-denial. Yes, there are rules and regulations that come with this. Christ gave us the law, the new law, and the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's got to be more than just a nebulous loving of Jesus. Love makes demands on us. If we love a person if we are in love with the person, there are demands that flow not from the exterior, but from our interior experience of love. And so, yeah, it, it can make a lot of demands on us. And it can seem to those who do not love the Lord or do not love others or do not know God's love to be too much. But how then can Christ say, my yoke is easy and my burden light? What makes in our own life a yoke or a burden, a moral responsibility or duty, what makes it light? 
Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. It's a very easy answer, but it's possible. And so the most important part about growing in a moral life is that encounter, which many people have not had. And we can encounter Christ, of course, in, in different ways. We can encounter him in the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist. I've been seeing a lot lately people who are starting to pray more during COVID, and they're spending an hour in front of the Eucharist, and he's the one doing the change. Things are radically changing because he's acting on them rather than them trying to construct their own moral life. We encounter him in scripture, listening to the word of God, allowing it to act on us in church, particularly the other members who are in the body of Christ. Christ's presence, as we'll see, is often mediated. We don't encounter him directly. In prayer, our own individual experience, again, that can be a direct experience. Most often, the experiences are going to be mediated. And from that encounter, repeated encounter, then we develop a relationship with Jesus, relationship with Christ, which lasts, hopefully, all of our lives in this life and in the life to come, where we follow him and we become his disciple, the Sequoia Christi. But it all has to start with the encounter. And fortunately, I just think a lot of people have not encountered the Lord in a real way, and therefore their moral life isn't life-giving, and their lives don't attract others to Jesus and to the Father. We need to follow him to become his disciple. It's in a very tight splendor, number 19. This is not a matter only of disposing oneself to hearing a teaching and obediently accepting a commandment. More radically, it involves holding fast to the very person of Jesus, partaking of his life and destiny, sharing in his free and loving obedience to the will of the Father by responding in faith and following the one who is incarnate wisdom. The disciple of Jesus truly becomes a disciple of God. We follow him. We become his disciple. We learn to act as he did. We learn to become part of him and live life in Christ. But how do we do it? What, this, what does this look like? What does this life in Christ entail? How does one do it? Because, again, I, I'm a big fan of we say these things. What do we mean? We say, I'm in love with Jesus. What does that mean? We need God's grace. What, what does that word even mean? Can you, I mean, most people can't define what grace is. I can barely define what grace is. I'm going to give you a de- definition of it. But we say, we need to follow Jesus. That's the, well, what does that even mean, practically? Sounds great. People will love it in the homily. How do you do it? So, we're going to look at that. First of all, on the obvious level, is the extrinsic following of Christ and following his teachings. The rules, as John Paul II said. It's not just hearing the teaching and accepting the commandments, even though we can do that. Christ did have a body of teaching, the great commandment. Love God, love neighbors yourself. The Sermon of the Mount, where he fleshes out in detail a lot of the ways that we're supposed to behave, the Beatitudes. And we can adapt that, and and we can lead good lives. We can follow the commandments, particularly the Ten Commandments. And there's there's nothing bad about that. Even as we'll see Christ dispense with the old law, but the, 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 the core still remained of the Ten Commandments. But the thing is, is Jesus is more than just a moral teacher. And as I think, 
when you get to this point, you've got to love your enemies. You've got to pick up your cross and follow me. You have to be willing to die to yourself. That becomes a little difficult for people to follow. So we've got to understand then that Christianity is more than just a moral code. We can't, we, we, we've reduced, I think, in the eyes of many people, Christianity to following these rules, to a moral code. It's more than just simply a moral way of living, following a person. So what does that following a person look like? Well, there's following his example. Christ in his own life gave us an example of how to live. And so the, the, the imitation of Christ, um, that's a beautiful phrase that has been used. Uh, we follow Christ by imitating him. And so John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor number 20, Jesus asks us to follow him and to imitate him along the path of love, a love which gives itself completely to the brethren out of love for God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The word as requires imitation of Jesus and of his love, of which the washing of feet is a sign. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus' way of acting and his words, his deeds, and his precepts constitute the moral rule of Christian life. And so we say, like, oh, this is what Christ did. These things. This is how he treated people. This is how he loved people. Um, this is how he washed people's feet. So we need to do the same thing. And Christ is telling you, do, do what I do. Follow my rules. Now, of course, a lot of that derives from his knowledge of his father, but the way that Jesus spoke, his tenderness, his caring for others, his hospitality, his meekness and humble of heart, on a human level, where did that come from? It came from a number of places, but where's the primary way it came from? Place. Now that's his divine level. Come for his mother and his father too. Where did you like? Where did I like to say this in, in my retreats? Christ received his physical DNA from his mom. He also received his spiritual DNA. When you see the way Christ loves and acts and encounters others, yes, it's his divine person shining through his humanity. But he learned those ways from his mom, from his dad, from his father, foster father, St. Joseph. And so we follow his example, which means, of course, then we're really following Mary's example, too, as he, she passed it on to Jesus. And so we act as he did. We treat others as he did. We love as he did. But is it just simply, I am going to imitate this? No. All of his actions, his exterior actions, if we know our theology of the body, his, his actions were a sacrament of something deeper, a deeper disposition. So it can't just be an outward imitation. We need to see Christ and his body and his person reflecting or imaging or sacramentalizing something deeper. Veritat of Splendor 21. Again, this is all that first section that y'all are going to need to read um, about the encounter with the rich young man. Following Christ is not an outward imitation. 
So it touches man at the very depths of his being. Being a follower of Christ means becoming conformed to him who became a servant, even to giving himself on the cross. Christ dwells by faith in the heart of the believer. And thus the disciple is conformed to the Lord. By faith to the Lord, this is the effect of grace, the active presence of the Holy Spirit within us. So if you just simply try to imitate Christ and his behavior without an interior transformation, you're not going to be able to do it. Because it takes grace. It takes the gift of the Spirit to be able to really love as he loved, to die to self as he did, to give of oneself. There has to be an openness to that interior dimension, which means if we're not on a daily basis encountering Jesus and allowing him to transform us, it's not going to happen. It's going to become crushing. When you look at Mother Teresa, who probably better than just about anyone modeled Christ the light shining in the darkness and her care for the poor and the destitute. And if you would ask her, how did you do this? How do you not just despair and, 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 and be crushed by it? And she said, it was the prayer, particularly in front of the Eucharist, the daily mass and the, the time in front of Jesus in the Holy Hour, where she allowed Christ to act on her, to transform her heart. This is where it comes from. Yes? So you said uh, you know, how you find grace, or how you barely got an example. Is that, can you use that, like that depth, like that, not the outward imitation, but that supernatural, I guess, change? Can you define, can you define yeah, uh, well, we're going to, that's a good question. So the question is like, how do you define grace? I, I don't want to jump ahead because I'm going to get it later on. Grace basically means gift. I mean, it comes from the Greek word charis, grace, gift. And in the history of the church, we've, I remember I took a class on grace. I saw the textbook where they did the scholastic analysis of all these different types of grace. And I believe it's valid. Actual grace, sacramental grace, grace is freely given. I'm just a caveman. I can't understand all of these confusing ways of grace. Grace is God's presence given to you in baptism. It's the indwelling trinity. It's preferably, primarily what they call uncreated grace. It's God. And so it's the indwelling of the Spirit. There's more complications to that. If you're living in grace, God's living in you and he's acting through you. And from that, yeah, you need sacramental grace to allow him to enter into you. And we're going to get into explanations of that. But I'm pretty simple. You're not, uh, probably not going to get into many, many distinctions in your parish about all the scholastic distinctions of different types of grace. But grace is ultimately God's gift of himself to you in the sacraments. That's, that's about it. You get that? It makes sense. And so this is the gift of himself. Here we, we, we sort of put it in on the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. And we're going to be talking about, when we get to the Spirit, life of the Spirit, we'll talk more about that. So there has to be that interior transformation. It's not, the catechism doesn't say it's life with Christ the life in Christ. And somehow we need to be incorporated into his life. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like through baptism, through the sacraments, through the gift of the church and being part of the body of Christ. But basically, in some mystical sense, we are transformed into Christ, where we have hearts like Jesus. 
Christ's heart was, he was meek and humble of heart. We become meek and humble of heart. We love with Christ's heart. We're conformed to him on the cross. And our willingness to give of ourselves or to allow Christ to give of himself through us. Which, of course, if you're not connected through prayer and the sacraments, you're not going to be able to do it. How can you be transformed interiorly? How can you be conformed to Christ if you're not praying? It's not something in here. It's not in the head. It's got to be in the heart. And actually, as we talked about in my little retreat earlier, you're going to enter into the prayer of Jesus. We can do that. We can enter into Christ's life. We can enter into his prayer. He can enter into our prayer. And over time, as we pick up the cross, as we die to self, as we learn to embrace our own humanity and our own fallenness and know that the Lord still loves us, we become emptier. And we end up realizing, I got nothing. I'm weak. I'm sinful. I'm imperfect. I'm an idiot. You know, I was looking at Archbishop Hughes' little book in the very first chapter. Apostles, stupid. Holy Spirit comes, less stupid. Still stupid, but, but filled with the Spirit, courageous. They're able to go and do stuff. But they still made mistakes. They were still idiots. But they were filled with the Spirit. There's a transformation there that comes through that. Even through year, three years of working with Jesus, they still were able to make mistakes. But they embraced their emptiness so that the Spirit could fill them up, that Christ could live and act through them. That's the whole key. We have to, as one spiritual author talks about, like, you know, she, this is Sister Ruth Burroughs, if you've never read her, hopefully you will. She says that in her life as a Carmelite, there's just so much darkness, and, and she didn't see Jesus, and she didn't get any consolations in prayer, and she finally realized Jesus was emptying her out so that he could live in there, and he could act through her. So she was wanting some sort of a direct response or this direct encounter. But no, the Lord was filling her up, and Jesus was loving others through her, even though she didn't feel it. She had become that, that empty vessel that Christ could fill up. And then, ooh, it made sense. Ah, oh, this is how I'm going to live my moral life. This is, I'm going to let, St. Paul said, not just me, but Christ living in me, acting through me. And this is so important, particularly for priests. And particularly for priests. You know, we can encounter Jesus, of course, in all these different ways. But in my experience, we'll talk about one of the greatest ways I've encountered Jesus or encountered the love of the Father or whatever is allowing him to work through me. When we experience, oh, yeah, Jesus loves this person or look at how the Lord through me touched this person. You're going to realize you're an idiot. Look, when you become a pastor, you're going to really, a priest, you're going to realize what a fool you are um, and that the Lord still works through you. And you're amazed. Whoa, you know, this is amazing. That's how you're going to experience it directly, too. But that's the gift of the priesthood, and that's what the Lord is calling us to. Now, you have the encounter, you have this transformation, but does it happen overnight? It would be nice if it did. It would be wonderful. You just go pray a holy hour. Boom! Jesus is shining through you. No. It's a lifelong process. Some of us, like St. Therese, it's very succinct, and we can do it very quickly. Most of us, you're going to be carrying the cross for a long time. And that Christ will make you perfect, as Pope Francis talks about with, with St. Peter. Through many, many meetings with him and receiving his mercy, 
Peter became holy in the same way with us. So we're going to learn, yeah, that encounter with Christ doesn't dispel our humanity. It still keeps our humanity. But in our own falls and our weakness, we allow Christ to show us his mercy and to fill us up. And it's going to be a journey. It's a life of transformation in Christ. It's the road to Emmaus. We're walking into the darkness, but we believe Christ is working through us. So where do, does the, this journey begin? As we'll see, for most of us, the journey began in our baptism. We were babies, and we didn't know what was going on. And then we later had to accept the faith ourselves or do whatever our parents told us. But where, at least in the perspective of Christ preaching and the gospel message, where does this journey begin? Where does this journey begin? Granted, I'm sure you could say there are a number of places it begins, but for the sake of the Sequela Christi and what we're going to talk about next time, where does it technically begin? It does, sort of. We'll talk about that. But in your own personal life, it does. Well, not you meet him. The rich young man met him, but he didn't follow him. When you're not afraid to start talking about Jesus and how he can help you in your life, in the person's life. True, but what, 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 from a scriptural perspective, to begin living the good news and allowing what the good news and the gospel to take effect, what do we have to do? Repent. 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 The, the, the journey become, begins with repentance. Of, again, baptism, even though we're not doing it, it's, it's an expression of repentance. I'm turning away from the evil one. I'm turning away from sin, the wiles of the devil, in order to follow Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but that Sequela Christi is about turning away from sin and the flesh to a life in Christ. It's redemption, justification, salvation. You know, you took your classes on soteriology, however you want to define it. It has to be something that begins with a turning away from sin and a turning towards Christ to accept the good news. And that transformation does happen on the inside. And we'll talk about that, what that looks like. Uh, in the realm of what baptism is, how baptism affects us, what the baptismal promises are. But what does it mean to convert? What does it mean to repent from sin and to begin following the way of Christ? Because it's what the rich young man, even though he was living a morally just life in the exterior, he was still attached, couldn't follow him in that more radical way. And unless we're willing to give up lives of sin and attachment disordered attachment to things of the world that drive us down, we're not going to be able to follow Jesus on the exterior and the interior level. And so that's Aquila Christi. The second part we're going to look at is conversion. Before we can begin the journey here, we have to turn our heads away from sin to start following Christ, to give that up. And then we have the journey that lasts all of our life as we are gradually transformed into him, put on the new man, um, and we, we live a life of grace and holiness and share in his mission. Make sense? All right, so that's what we're going to discuss uh, next time um, when we, we meet together and we, we go through this. So we'll see how it fleshes out. 
I don't know what else I could really add to this. I know y'all have gotten a lot of information. I will tell you, I'm generally, I don't like to waste time. I don't like to waste your time or my time. So me rambling on nonsensically and just meandering, I'm going to stick to a task of what I want to teach. Uh, so we're not going to waste time in the class, which, of course, you appreciate. It's a good moral thing. We're going to be frugal with our time. So, I mean, I think uh, we've kind of summed most of it up. What I'll do is we'll close a little glory be. And then if you have any questions or comments, we can have a little discussion. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, world without end. Amen.